Welcome to Manage Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Pretty much a day does not go by where a member of Congress or a policy organization or the administration is putting out yet another idea to try and lower healthcare prices. In July, CMS proposed a set of changes to how hospitals would have to become more transparent, posting their standard charges on the internet, and legislation to end surprise medical billing is winding its way through Congress. Today on Managed Carecast, we're speaking with Dr. Marty McCary, a surgical oncologist and chief of the Johns Hopkins Islet Transplant Center. His second book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It, is set for release in early September 2019. Dr. McCary, thank you for joining us today on Managed Carecast. Great to be with you, Allison. So to start off, it occurred to me as I was reading the first few chapters of this book that it almost reminded me of a true crime novel as you and your research associates flew around to rural parts of the country to remote courthouses, looking up lawsuits filed by hospitals against patients, and you were examining their medical bills. What's happening in American healthcare today? What is the average patient facing when they get sick and need care? Well, I think we have good people working in a bad system. I think everybody in healthcare at every level, at the level of hospital administration and insurance and business leaders in, in, um, in so many areas of healthcare and the clinicians, the doctors and nurses, we're all united by a sense of compassion. But right now, today, Allison, I'm seriously concerned that the price gouging going on in healthcare is eroding the great public trust in the medical profession. Now, it's an incredible heritage. People come to see us as physicians, and within a minute of meeting us, we'll share secrets they've never told anybody or, or trust us to put a knife to their skin just because they're at the hospital. That, that is valuable. That public trust came after a lot of hard work and the medical profession has earned it. Today's modern money, money games threaten that great public trust. Remember, when most hospitals were built, they were built dedicated by their local churches and philanthropists to serve a community. They had a charter dedicating them to take care of anybody regardless of their ability to pay. And so I'm seriously concerned about the threat to the public trust in the medical profession. I mean, look, Half of people um, are concerned about their medical bills before they come to see a physician. One quarter of Americans say they rationed their insulin because of cost. And as many as 33% of women with stage four breast cancer today, according to a recent study, say that they've been harassed by medical debt collectors related to their cancer care. Uh, That's not who we are. That's not our heritage. And that's why I wrote the book really to talk about the disruptors and and innovators that are changing the business of medicine that have already fixed healthcare on very small scales and that have great ideas that we can all learn from. You mentioned churches a minute ago, and in your book, you discuss the issue of peripheral artery screenings taking place at church fairs around Washington, D.C., mostly in low-income African-American areas. What does that sort of example represent in healthcare? Well, I think there are two fundamental structural problems driving up the cost of healthcare. Number one is pricing failures 
and the middleman industry. And number two is inappropriate care. That is, we have a crisis in medicine of appropriateness. I mean, isn't the opioid crisis one manifestation of the crisis of appropriateness? 10 years ago, we physicians prescribed 2.4 billion prescriptions. Last year, it hit 5 billion. Did disease really double in the last 10 years? No, we have a crisis of appropriateness. And so the um, over-screening, what I call predatory screening, um, you know, if you change the vocabulary, it looks a lot different. If we call unnecessary health screenings that lead to downstream procedures predatory screenings, it's a, it's a lot different. If we talk about people that come into care that are price gouged, charged prices that are never charged to anyone that comes in as a insured patient, uh, that in my opinion is predatory pricing. When you go to a restaurant and you say, can I look at a menu? They don't say, who's your employer, right? There's a fair and honest price. And in the book, The Price We Pay, I highlight centers that are saying, hey, we're going to go to standard pricing. We're going to use fair prices, and, and they're going to be totally transparent. And what we're seeing in Washington, D.C., is the policymakers responding to this tremendous demand for price transparency. In that example of the artery screenings, that was because that was a service that Medicare was paying for, correct? Absolutely. Medicare was feeding that system. They, they continue to feed that system. People with good intentions show up at a health fair to be screened by local um, medical providers. And it turns out some of those screenings violate the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines. But also, people talk about Medicare for all as a cure-all for the system. That entire system that I described, the, the money games, the unnecessary care, the, the taking advantage of the system by the providers, that is all fed by Medicare. And if you feed Medicare and expand it, you're feeding that very problem without fixing it. And the question is, how can we really stop talking about just different ways to fund the broken healthcare system? How can we finally talk about how to fix the broken healthcare system. So since you mentioned Medicare for All, one of the things that is in, in your book is also something that's also very much in the news uh, almost every day, and that's the Affordable Care Act. Your book largely focuses on prices, but it doesn't, um, as I recall, discuss access to healthcare or to insurance markets. My question might be theoretical, but does it matter in the long run that if prices come down, but people are still uninsured or underinsured, you know, what difference does that make? Well, so there are two entirely separate problems. And in general, I focus on where there's consensus in the United States. Echo chambers of cable news and the media really seek to divide all of us. It helps their ratings. It helps the entertainment industry, which is also known as the media. And what we see is this sort of intense division over issues that people don't understand. We already spend enough money to provide gold-plated insurance for everybody in America. It's just we need to cut the waste. The Affordable Care Act had two aims, very simply. And I speak not as a, I, I'm, I'm not speaking as a partisan. I consider myself independent. But very objectively, from a, my standpoint as a professor of health policy, those two aims were, one, to expand coverage, which it did in part, and number two, to lower health care costs, the promise during the 
um, uh, Obama campaign when he first ran for president was to lower health insurance costs by $2,500 a year. Okay, that did not happen. Okay, that goal was not achieved by the ACA. And therefore, repealing the ACA doesn't lower health care costs. The ACA simply failed in its promise to lower health care costs, not because it was a malicious bill or even highly flawed. The problem is it's far more complex than the policymakers understand. And if we really want to get at re reducing the waste in health care, we have to get at pricing failures in middlemen, and we have to get at the appropriateness crisis in, in medicine. And that's really the perspective I take in healthcare. I don't think anyone who understands the issues I write about or gets educated on the issues uh, really has a pro versus con argument unless they're beholden to some giant stakeholder. Transparency transcends politics. Wanting good care for the American people transcends politics. Imagine, Allison, if we had travel websites where you went on to buy a ticket say a direct flight from Philadelphia to Chicago, and under every single airline flight that came up, it, it didn't have a price. Instead, it said to be billed by the airline after the flight. And imagine everyone in America was getting uh, charged this way. And imagine stories looming large where more than half of Americans felt that they were gouged, that the bills were overpriced, or that they got a surprise bill from the airline companies for consuming a beverage, and the bill of the month journalists were reporting stories of a $50,000 ticket in billed in pieces after somebody flew. The airline industry, you could imagine, might argue, we can't give you the price of a flight. We don't know if there's gonna be a delay. We don't know if the pilot's going to experience turbulence, in which case they may have to use more RVUs to work on that flight. Uh, we don't know if the flight could be canceled. We can't give you a price, right? This, these arguments, I think we would all agree are absurd. Nobody would, that I know of, honestly thinks we should go back to no price transparency after we've seen it. I don't think anybody wants travel websites with no prices. Tell me in what industry have they had transparency, be it nutrition labels or uh, price transparency in any industry, and then said, mm, this was a bad idea. And at the same time, if we saw airline industries with record profits, we'd say, hey, wait a minute, the lack of price transparency is creating a lot of rich, you know, a lot of profits off of the waste from the lack of uh, prices. So I, I, I don't think these are partisan issues. I think we've seen tremendous strides with the price transparency initiatives of the, of the current administration. I've met with Secretary Azar. I think he's one of the smartest people I've ever met in healthcare. Unfortunately though, because people have their preconceived prejudices, uh, they don't like to cover in the media some of the successes of this administration. Certainly the price transparency executive order is one of the greatest achievements in recent years in healthcare. Do you think that order goes far enough? Is it about right? Should it go a little farther? Well, I think the cool thing right now, Allison, is that with or without the government, the, the private sector is moving towards more competition. Employers are demanding it. They want to know these secret negotiated prices. They're doing direct contracts with hospitals right now. 
I show how one of the brightest spots in healthcare today is how the relationship-based clinics, that is the Iora, Oak Street, ChenMed, GenCare clinics, are they're growing like wildfire. People love relationship-based medicine. It's totally disrupting primary care. If you don't think primary care is broken in America today, then you haven't been to a doctor recently because the 10-minute visits, the reflex treat, the consumerist demands of moms wanting antibiotics for their kids, that 10-minute visit bill throughput model is for the birds. Patients don't like it, doctors don't like it, and it's really bad for the appropriateness of care and the, the ability and, and practicing good sound medicine. These clinics are, through Medicare Advantage and through direct employer contracts, are totally disrupting primary care, where doctors spend time with people, they get into deep issues, they talk about food as medicine and lifestyle and cooking classes, and you get assigned a, a patient navigator, and the navigator will come visit your home or check in on you. They coordinate your specialists and the tests and the procedures and the consultations, and it's exactly how doctors would design primary care if they could start from scratch. And, and essentially, that's exactly what they did. Do you think that that could also lead to health disparities between people who can pay for that kind of care and people who can't, that kind of personal attention? Well, what's amazing, if you look at, say, ChenMed, one of the relationship-based um, primary care clinics that's globally capitated, they have a mission to serve poor, high-risk populations. They, they are selectively located in poor areas in the United States, and they're driven by an incredible organizational culture. Iora, the same incredible organizational culture where they don't see themselves as taking care of a patient that walks into the clinic. They see themselves as a clinic group, as a team, taking care of a population. That means those who come into the clinic and those who don't. They, they do outreach. They're doing incredible stuff. That's really, that's great medicine, right? And you've got net promoter scores in the 90s, whereas it, for most clinics in primary care, the net promoter score which is the uh, benchmark of whether or not people recommend that, that service to another, um, to a friend. It's normally in the teens in primary care. You know, airlines have net promoter scores in the 20s, and you've got primary care clinics with net promoter scores in the 90s, uh, the highest being 100. That's impressive, right? That is why the doctors in those clinics are not burning out. They can't wait to get to work. That's why they're proud of what they're doing and their service. That is the great heritage of the medical profession, caring for the sick and injured and serving communities. And it was just so amazing to have the privilege to visit uh, these clinics and writing the book, The Price We Pay, to really share their story with, with other people. Your book also gets into the issue of pharmacy benefit managers and the rebate system. You talked a little bit about middlemen before. The Trump administration sought to end PBM rebates in Medicare, but then did it in about face. What do you make of efforts in Washington, D.C. to try and fix that system, or is that even fixable? I don't think it was uh, personally an about face. I would say it was a prioritization of what's politically feasible at the moment. You know, there's a lot of conversations about what you can get done and what you can't in a certain period of time. I think the um, 
scrutiny on rebates is alive and well. I mean, there was a bipartisan effort to have 100% pass-through of uh, rebates with insulin proposals on Capitol Hill. These are bipartisan proposals. So they keep coming up. I think the administration can only do so much. We need Congress to act. I think that Congress is mostly bought by special interests. I think they talk a big game. Get the conversations about um, lowering drug costs in America. Show me one meaningful proposal uh, that has actually passed and, and lowered drug costs. Um, CMS, I think, has done an amazing job doing what they can. But by and large, what I see on, on Capitol Hill is a lot of grandstanding, especially when it comes to drug pricing, and not a lot of interest in actually doing something. Look, PBMs and group purchasing organizations in America are middlemen that serve a purpose and can provide value, but because they have a special carve-out to antitrust rules where their kickbacks from the pharma companies or the manufacturers are legal, um, they have lost that fiduciary independence to patients and providers. And so what, what I think we've seen lately is this pay-to-play kind of conversation between PBMs and pharma, where they say, hey, if you want to be in our formulary, pay us this what they call administrative fees, which are known on the, on the street as rebates. Um, they're really kickbacks. They're really pay-to-play fees. I don't think we should have kickbacks in medicine. I don't think we should have secrets in pricing in medicine. I think if we got rid of kickbacks and pricing secrets, we'd address a lot of the inefficiencies and waste in the markets today. This is money paid from pharma and manufacturers to PBMs and GPOs in order to have good placement in their sales lists. And I think those money games are very profitable for the middlemen. They don't even exist in a lot of other countries, by the way, and they didn't exist in the United States for most organizations 30, 40 years ago. These are new money games that account for some of the waste in healthcare. Why do we have spread pricing with PBMs? How about flat administrative fee pricing? And whether or not the government does anything, I'm watching employers go to PBMs and say, hey, I want a really fair and honest contract. I want to pay flat administrative fees per prescription. I don't want any mail order requirements, and I don't want any biologic restrictions that we have to use a certain pharmacy that may charge more. And we don't want, we want 100% pass through on the rebates. Employers can negotiate great pharmacy plans through PBMs. It's not that PBMs are good or bad. There's a function in processing claims. It's that those contracts right now need the, the light of day and they need transparency and employers need to know how to shop better when they buy pharmacy plans and health insurance. Your book also talks about getting physicians to change behavior. And one of the ways that uh, you did that in one of your projects was through Improving Wisely, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation project, which I think you had or used to head, correct me if I'm wrong, about creating what you call those measures of appropriateness in healthcare. And you, you, you use the example of Mohs surgery 
is that kind of effort really gaining traction with physicians and what is their reaction now? It's very exciting right now, Allison. You know, if we think about quality measures in healthcare, and I've been on the academic side of quality measurement for 15 years as a Johns Hopkins um, faculty member, really quality measures have been measuring complication rates after we do something. So we surgeons will do an operation like a knee replacement, and then we measure the surgical site infection rate. Well, guess what the infection rate is after a knee replacement in America today? It's less than 1%. Do we really think that comparing the surgeon who's at 0.9 versus the surgeon who's at 0.6% of an infection rate is really the where the opportunity is for improvement in quality, while at the same time, knee surgeons are telling us that up to 20% of knee surgery is altogether unnecessary, we have not measured the appropriateness of care in quality science. We have not asked, did you need that operation? Did you need that diagnostic test? Did you need that prescription? Instead, we have an entire field of quality measurement that is triggered by doing something, by actually operating, prescribing, or doing a test. So we've not captured the patient that walks in the door where we need to exercise sound judgment as physicians and say, you know, while I could justify doing surgery here, how about we try physical therapy first? How about we try cooking differently? How about we try medi uh, meditation for borderline hypertension? and we get three good readings done properly with a blood pressure cuff before we jumped, we jumped to an antihypertensive. That's the new science of medicine. And if there's one theme in the last five years of the medical literature, it's that we've been doing too much. That indications for things that we do should be far more narrow than we previously appreciated. Even in the treatment of appendicitis, which does not need surgery, 75% of the time for non-ruptured appendicitis. So we're learning a about this. And in that Mohs example you, you cited, sending doctors their data where they stand relative to their peers around an appropriateness measure that the peer experts in that specialty have endorsed. That simple dear doctor letter showing people where they stood, which cost about $150,000 to do the analysis and mailing, resulted in a $27 million savings to CMS. So we're talking about real improvements. That's pretty amazing. Are you gonna go work for CMS now? <laughs> <laughs> well, we published that result, and I thought that that's one where the American College of Mohs Surgeons should take all the credit. Um, my research team at Johns Hopkins did not invent transparency. We didn't invent the concept of benchmarking uh, physicians to their peers with confidential data reports, but using the model where we allow specialists to define what's important, we don't take an all good, all do always or do never approach to quality. Instead, we embrace the art of medicine and embrace variation, but we do it within boundaries that we let the experts in that specialty set. And what you can do is look at the data and see who falls outside of that range of appropriateness. And sure enough, those are the doctors who need help. They need help and they can cost a lot of money. The outliers, um, maybe 8% of doctors, but they may represent 15% of the overall healthcare spend in that specialty. 
the, the outliers sometimes need help. Certainly with opioids, we've identified physician high prescribers who are prescribing a lot after a certain specific operation in narcotic naive patients. And what we found is that those doctors need help. Uh, we all had an aha moment in surgery, those of us that are prescribing far less opioids than we were, but we need to move fast. We can't wait for the standard 17-year lag period between evidence converting into practice when it comes to opioids. As you know, this is, these are things that data can help us fix. Looking back at the whole opioid issue, you write that it didn't really hit home for you until you saw your dad recover from surgery without them. And then one of your coworkers talked about the amount she was prescribed, uh, even though she wasn't using them in the hospital when she was discharged. Is there anything that you think now that you would have done differently? Or is it a case that you just didn't have the information? Or was it pressure from, you know, pharma or somewhere else? I think patients ask that question now when they think about, you know, some of their friends and relatives. It's really hard to see how this opioid crisis has transpired because I personally feel partially responsible. And I think while there are many factors and there's a lot of finger pointing, I think we need to all look inward and ask, how did we contribute to this problem and how can we now fight it? Look, I prescribed opioids liberally with good intentions and bad science for most of my surgical career. Patients who had a standard gallbladder surgery, I would often prescribe 30 opioid pills. I now recognize that they probably don't need opioids at all. If anything, five or a prescription for five or 10 uh, pills, but ibuprofen and acetaminophen in combination work very well, along with local anesthetic administered at the time of surgery, and a whole host of other interventions, including uh, heat and cold therapy and distraction and all sorts of things. So uh, pain is very specific to an individual. It's associated strongly with anxiety. I've appreciated that more and more through my career. And we should not just be throwing opioids at these uh, patients. We should be giving them clear instructions, giving them options, warning them about the risk of fatal addiction, and I didn't do that for a long time. And it took, as you said, until I saw my father have a gallbladder surgery, the same operation I, I've done over a thousand times and prescribed over 30 opioids or 30 opioids or more each of those thousand times. I watched him recover with one ibuprofen. And it was very, very, I don't know, I, I, enlightening. And at the same time, I felt terrible looking back as it, has come out that many people who either lost their life due to opioids or, or are currently dependent first were introduced to opioids after having routine surgery and were given more opioids than they needed or opioids when they didn't need any at all. So I think we need, this is one of the reasons we have the website solvethecrisis.org. We're running a national hospital collaborative based here at Johns Hopkins with a grant from the, from the Arnold Foundation where hospitals can sign on to change their epic e-prescribing defaults. So when we do an operation and write a prescription, now those defaults represent the guidelines at solvethecrisis.org, which are the guidelines published uh, by the American College of Surgeons. 
that we developed with a uh, consensus uh, out of Johns Hopkins. So we can do better. Um, knowledge is, is powerful and patients should be able to see these prescribing recommendations as well as physicians. So to end the conversation on a lighter note, is there anything you saw on your two-year trip writing this book that gives you hope that there is a way out of this overall mess, anything that is making a difference, whether it's websites, transparency, disruptors? I think one of the least represented stakeholders in the entire healthcare system has been the patients. There's broad and strong representation in Washington, D.C., and with lobbying funds from many of these uh, of the um, stakeholders, but patients have not been one of them. And what I'm excited about, and one of the reasons I'm so optimistic about healthcare, is I saw so many doctors and health plans and hospitals and individuals and concerned citizens rally around this idea of how can we redesign care from scratch. And it, sometimes it looked like Chen Med and Iora. Sometimes it looked like a medical center that offers a clear uh, price list of procedures like a menu. And it's the same price for a payer as it is for an individual. And really, really cool sort of plan designs, um, new innovations in the PBM space. I mean, if people are educated on pharmacy plans, they can shop for a better plan, right? It's a free country. We don't live in North Korea. You can shop for a better deal. And it just takes educating people to figure out what are the better health plans? What are the better pharmacy plans? Where are the medical centers that offer more transparent pricing? And uh, right now we have something called a national transparency dashboard that we're working on with the understanding that billing quality is medical quality. Financial toxicity is a medical complication. And caring for a patient is caring for the entire patient. And so we're not only tracking patient outcomes in terms of complications, we're tracking billing outcomes and how aggressive are those collections practices and how forgiving can a provider be and how generous are they relative to their profits or margins. And I think what you see behind a lot of this special interest are actually human beings who want to do the right thing. And they look at the system and ask, how did it get this ugly, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Nobody intended a community hospital to sue 25,000 people in a small town in America, as I point out one story in the book. And what you saw was a grassroots movement to say, hey, hospital board members who are liaisons to the community, hey, donors, look what's happening. Look how out of control it's gotten. At the hospital, the doctors aren't even aware of how predatory this, these collections practices have gotten to the point of suing people to garnish their paycheck. And I, I am very proud that our team was able to respectfully contact some hospitals, ask them to stop suing patients. And um, as we have on the website, restoringmedicine.org, uh, we were able to convince hospitals in America to agree to stop suing patients, especially poor patients who live paycheck to paycheck. And I think those stories need to be told. That's why we have their stories up on the restoringmedicine.org website. 
And that's in part why I wanted to write the book, The Price We Pay, because, you know, we're taught medical literacy, but we're never really taught healthcare literacy in our medical training. And healthcare literacy is one of those things that really everybody should have. And healthcare is sort of nebulous to a lot of people, but I wanted to be able to capture the healthcare system with a series of stories that expand into the behind the scenes business practices, highlight the disruptors and innovators, and have somebody leave reading the book, The Price We Pay, with a feeling like, I finally now feel like I understand the business of medicine and how it works on a macro level and how I can navigate care for myself. So that's a little bit about the book project. And thank you, Allison, for inviting me on to talk about it. It's uh, good to be back on the podcast. Oh, it's great to talk to you. I'm so happy that you're on. And um, the book comes out on what day again? September 8th? September 9th. 9th. Okay, got it. Well, thank you again. And um, we're looking forward to your next book. Great. Thanks so much, Allison. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about issues surrounding the price and cost of healthcare, visit AGMC.com and see the show notes for links to Marty McCary's book and other websites he referenced. To contact us, email info at AGMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AGMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.